This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, hello, folks, and thanks for tuning in to AOA. There is a lot happening today in agriculture. Big news yesterday from Georgetown University. As Secretary of Ag Tom Vilsack announced a $2.1 billion program designed to, quote, transform the U.S. food system. We'll talk about that at the end of the show with Mike Strands, the VP of Ag- Advocacy at the National Farmers Union. Before we get to that, though, we're going to talk with Glenn Tonser, professor of Ag Econ at K-State, about his meat demand monitor. The figures for the month of May are hot off the presses. In fact, I don't think he's hit publish on the website yet, so they will be discussed first here on the AOA show. And we're going to talk about the fertilizer market. If you've been pricing urea the last week or so, we've seen a big drop in the values of that fertilizer product in New Orleans. Josh Linville, the director of fertilizer at Stonex, will join us here in segment two to talk about whether or not this is a long-term shift towards lower-priced fertilizer or if it's just a blip. Before we get into all of that, however, as we're thinking about the U.S. food system coming under scrutiny from Washington, D.C., that's no surprise to the meat sector. Meat, beef in particular, have been under the watchful eye of Congress for two years now, and we're continuing to see new bills and new ideas come out of D.C., One of those that was discussed in the House Ag Committee in the month of May, in fact, was voted out of the House Ag Committee, is H.R. 7606. This is a House bill that is designed to create a new position at USDA for a special investigator to oversee the meat industry. Joining me to talk about it is Tanner Beamer. He is the Senior Director of Government Affairs at NCBA. And Tanner, thanks for joining us today. Always a pleasure, Mike. Good to hear from you. Let's talk about H.R. 7606. This bill was written in the House. It has passed out of the Ag Committee. Tanner, what are the representatives trying to do with this bill? Well, I think first and foremost, they're trying to demonstrate to their constituents back home ahead of a very competitive midterm election that they are doing something to address food price inflation. Uh, They don't want to tackle the real drivers of inflation, so it's much easier to blame everything on corporate greed and therefore uh, place the meatpacking sector under the microscope, and that's what this bill is designed to do. Like you said, it would create a special investigator's office at USDA, give them subpoena power to investigate uh, allegations of anti-competitive behavior, and then allows USDA to unilaterally pursue civil litigation in the event that they uncover any evidence of wrongdoing, which is fairly rare among the United States uh, federal executive. Typically, when an executive agency that's charged with enforcement of a certain statute wants to bring litigation, they have to go through the U.S. Attorney's Office. This bill would upend that altogether and give that power solely to USDA. And Tanner, I understand a lot of frustration is coming from these folks' constituents because we do have a Department of Justice investigation into the meatpacking sector that's languished for two years. So is this a way to try and push that forward faster? You know, I don't know that that has been really part of the conversation in terms of this legislation, right? We have seen some immense frustrations from the lack of any significant updates from that Justice Department investigation. But like our president, Don Schiefelbein, said when he was testifying before the House Agriculture Committee uh, in late April, he said, before we legislate any potential solutions to these problems that we're seeing or supposed problems that we're seeing in the meatpacking sector, we need to first know for sure, A, whether or not there was a problem, and B, what the extent of the problem was before we try and address these situations in statute through policy prescriptions. And that's one of the reasons why NCBA has been vocally opposed to this legislation. It's a solution in search of a problem as of right now, not to mention the fact that this is an unfunded proposal, which means that it will have to take resources away from other critical USDA programs in order to get teed up if this legislation were enacted. Not to mention the fact that this is duplicative because there already is an enforcement agency that can investigate competition matters among the meatpacking sector. 
called the Packers and Stockyards Division. It's an agency which has not seen a substantial budget increase since 2010, and by the agency's own estimations, it's 40% understaffed. Rather than creating a brand new entity, we think it makes far more sense to give adequate resources to the existing tools that we already have to enforce the act and ensure a fair and transparent marketplace. So, Tanner, to that end, are there conversations on Capitol Hill to adequately fund the PSA, or is all of the energy being devoted to this special investigator position? Well, far more energy is being devoted to the special investigator bill than we would like to see. Obviously, that is more of an authorizing play than it is an appropriations play where the funding for the Packers and Stockyards Division conversation would unfold. You know, we're hopeful that appropriators will take a look at this very seriously and and realize that the best bang for their buck is, in fact, to grant a budget increase to the Packers and Stockyards Division. Uh, The president's fiscal year 23 budget request asked for an approximately 52% increase in the Packers and Stockyards Division budget. We think that that is an excellent place to start to make sure that uh, we can address some of these staffing issues, make sure people are there to answer the phones when producers call and have questions or concerns or want to report some uh, allegations of violations of the Packers and Stockyards Act. We need to be looking at that before we start uh, giving new power to USDA to enforce the act in a way that is unfunded. And it should be noted, USDA does not have this new power yet. This bill passed out of the House Ag Committee. It was a a, a tight vote, relatively speaking, 27 yay, 21 nay. Tanner, are there companion bills for this issue in the Senate as of yet? You know, the original introduction of this legislation occurred in the Senate. It was brought by Senator John Tester, who's a Democrat from Montana, and Chuck Grassley, who everybody should know by now is a Republican from Iowa. Uh, And that legislation has been heard in the Senate Agriculture Committee. No markups or any official movement yet, but it has been heard in a formal legislative hearing. Uh, One thing that continues to be true in Washington, that the most valuable commodity in this town is floor time in the United States Senate. And there is very limited time remaining in the congressional calendar. We only have about 36 legislative days between now and the midterm elections. And there is a lot that needs to be done in the Senate besides just this piece of legislation, not to mention the fact that uh, we are seeing this largely play out on on party lines. There are some notable exceptions to that rule, but this issue is predominantly supported by Democrats and predominantly opposed by Republicans. That makes it very difficult to cross that 60-vote threshold that you need to invoke cloture and ultimately move legislation across the finish line in the U.S. Senate. All right, Tanner. So timeline-wise, we've got, as you mentioned, a few days left in the calendar. Do you anticipate this coming up for a full vote before we get to November? Well, at this point in the election cycle, everything that they do on Capitol Hill is designed to send a very clear message to voters as to why they should send, you know, the party that's in control back to Congress in full control and power. And if you're in the minority, you're trying to demonstrate the opposite. And so I think that if there is additional movement on these uh, individual pieces of legislation, that it will not be done unilaterally. It will not be done by itself. It will probably get packaged together with other issues. Um, You've heard uh, tremendous amounts of news reports on the infant formula shortage. You've heard concerns about concentration in the pharmaceutical industries and energy. If it's going to move, it will be as part of a larger package that includes those things. All right. Lots of issues to address before the midterm elections. This is one of them. Tanner Beamer, NCBA Senior Director of Government Affairs, giving us an update on the special investigator position potentially at USDA. Tanner, thanks for your time. And folks, stick with us. Josh Linville, Director of Fertilizer at StoneX, will join us when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. 
Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon. Accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america this is mike pearson and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world keeping america's farmers and ranchers informed on aoa now back to mike pearson Hello, folks, and welcome back to AOA. We have been talking on this program, well, since I started filling this seat after Mr. Mike Adams, about these crazy high-priced inputs. And they are continuing, folks. West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil trading today at $116 a barrel. Brent crude also running high. We are seeing everything show strength out there in the countryside. However, there has been some relief for one very important input for U.S. farmers, perhaps a little too late for most of us this growing season, but that's urea. Joining us today to talk about it is Josh Linville, the director of fertilizer at Stonex. Josh, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Hey, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Let's start with that urea market. Josh, things have been moving over the last week or 10 days, and they have been moving for the first time in a long time to the downside. What's going on down in New Orleans? Yeah, kind of after the last couple of years, I kind of forgot that prices can actually start to drop. So it's been a little bit of a whirlwind. As quickly as it's gone up, it started to come off. Um, it, it seems like right now, and it's all focused on the urea market. And the fertilizer market, of course, it went into the spring expecting demand to be there and for a normal on-time uh, demand cycle. And, of course, what we've seen has been anything but. We've seen uh, a lot of reports that we're going to lose even more corn acres in the north, which is, of course, very dependent on urea. Um, we are seeing a season that's very, very delayed. And so all of a sudden, all these inventories that were put in place to be ready to go and then other stockpiles coming, well, everything's starting to get jammed up. And now all of a sudden, that gets jammed up. Your interest rate starts to grow by the day. Your demerge rates, because you can't unload trains and barges and everything else, starts to grow by the day. And it's finally hit that break point. Uh, it, it seems as though we hit June 1 and everybody just kind of threw in the cards and said, I'm out. Get me out of these positions. So, protect my downside. So what has happened with the price here over the past 10 days? Past 10 days. And I've got to go back. It's actually uh, I'm, I'm down in Orlando right now with the family. I've got to go back and see just how much we've seen prices down. But I want to say in the last week, week and a half, we're probably down a little bit over $100 a ton. 
And if you go off of where we set our highs in late March, uh, where NOLA, New Orleans, Louisiana barges were trading around 930, we're currently down over $400 a ton. Wow, that is a big drop, Josh. And you touched on the domestic reasons, that potential fewer corn acres in the north, the wet spring we've seen delaying guys getting into the field. And then in your fertilizer comments, you also made a note that globally, there are thoughts that Russian exports are making their way onto the global supply chain. Josh, how is that happening? Is this black market fertilizer leaving Russia? Well, no, it's more of a it's a difference of countries around the world. You've got those NATO members out there that are, of course, pushing against Russia and punishing them from an economic standpoint, saying for your participation in what you're doing with Ukraine, we're no longer doing business with you. But now we're starting to see countries like India and Brazil and Mexico and these places are starting to step up and say, wait a minute, we can secure cheaper fertilizer for our people. We'll step aside from the rest of the world and we will go take advantage of that. So all of a sudden now we don't quite know what the numbers are that they are exporting. But we're seeing them selling phosphate, for example, uh, to India. So we know that urea is probably moving as well. We are hearing of a backlog of vessels down in Brazil trying to get unloaded with a lot of them coming from uh, Russia as well. So those tons that we originally thought would be zero are starting to show up. And as you start to grow that supply and the demand doesn't do anything to change, that's a typical bear signal. It is, Josh. And I've I've got to ask, and I know this is very long-term thinking, but growers right now are very concerned about those 2023 break-evens, even with the high commodity prices we've got today. Do you think this break in fertilizer price is going to extend and, and give some folks opportunities to get coverage for this winter next spring's demand? Well, that's kind of a, a multi-tier answer there. Uh, when I look at it from the December 23 corn versus where we're seeing urea today, and I'm calling urea right now $500, that puts that ratio around 80 bushels per ton of urea, and that's still on the high side of recent years. But then again, we've got to bear in mind, last few years has been a very bearish cycle. It's been a low price cycle. So from that perspective, I want to say there's more downside. But another part of that answer is we're seeing natural gas prices in the U.S. skyrocketing. Uh, we're used to, you know, $3, and last I looked, I think it was like 8 or $9. So now we got to start having the conversation of how much lower can it go before we start pressuring some of these cost of production at U.S. production points. That is a really good point. There are always those two sides pulling on the price lever, supply and demand. Josh, we've talked a lot about China in the fertilizer space when they restricted exports earlier this year. Do you think that fertilizer export restriction is going to remain in place all summer? It's a great question. I have had I've told I've had people tell me speculation anywhere from they think it's going to come back to a full export program here any day because we're now in June when the government said they were going to drop it. I've heard that people sit there and say they think it'll return in June, but it'll be uh, very closely uh, monitored by the government. I'm currently in that camp. I've had some people say they think the extension goes through December of 22 and others say June of 23. So it goes to show you nobody truly knows what's going on in China. It's all educated guesses and speculation. We'll have to wait and see. I, I think that a lot of the market is not expecting to see them back in. So if they do come back, even in a limited capacity, that's going to be new supply that comes out as well. And same thing as we talked about with Russia, that's a bearish situation. It is indeed, Josh, as we turn the calendar, well, from planting as, as growers get ready to move on from that after this wet spring, we're going to be going to the in-furrow season. We're going to see that UAN demand increase. How are prices trending there on the liquids? You're seeing a little bit of weakness. We're finally starting to see that price, break, uh, price point break. And that's something we haven't seen for a very long time. As urea has cycled down and up and down and up, UAN has been very steadfast. So I think right now we're finally starting to see people break, get nervous about having to carry tons into the summertime, and they're getting more aggressive. However, on the flip side, we've got to remember there's still a tremendous amount of demand out there for nitrogen. Yes, our corn acres are down, but we also know that our spring anhydrous is down. We've got to make up those tons. We know a lot of people are really going to be uh, reluctant to put urea on top of the ground. That's going to create more demand. So that's one I'm still watching. I don't know that it's going to cause the price to absolutely erupt, you're seeing UAN already at big premium versus urea pricing, but it, it's that's one that's going to have a little bit of volatility to it. Now, one of those causes of volatility, specifically in that market, has been the countervailing tariffs, the anti-duty tariffs that have been put on. I understand we're expected to see some decisions on those this summer. Josh, what way are, are you leaning as to how those are going to be decided? Well, unfortunately, I know this is probably something nobody wants to hear. 
but I still lean towards they approve this countervailing anti-dumping duty rate against Trinidad and Russian uh, UAN imports. Uh, when you look at these cases historically, they're a yes vote. Uh, it's almost a rubber stamp. So I'd say you're talking a 10% chance they say no. Now, this is a midterm cycle for elections. You're going to see a lot more politicians step up saying, oh, I, I'm, I'm vehemently opposed to it because you're fighting for the American farmer, which is what they're supposed to do. Maybe that raises the chance that that board listens to them and raises the chance of a no vote to 15 20%. Uh, there's also been some other commentary in the in the marketplace that I think might get used against this case. I guess if I have to put a, a percentage on them voting no, maybe 25%, and that's probably being much kinder than I should be. All right. So if we get that expected yes vote on these duties, duties remaining in place, that's just status quo, right, for the market. That's not going to cause any price hikes, is it? No, it, what it will do is, to a certain extent, you know, when you look at UAN, urea, and hydrous, they're, they're three different products, but they're all nitrogen, of course. We all know this. So when one starts to get too low or one starts to get too high, that creates pressure, and that's kind of what we're seeing today. Urea is a massive discount to UAN, and you're going to start to see more and more farmers say, listen, I, yeah, maybe I'm worried about volatilization if I throw urea on top of the ground, but if the price is significantly cheaper, I can afford that. I'm still doing better off putting it on the ground. So you're still going to see those all cycle together. But if these imports are cut out, it puts the North America producer back in charge without fear of that competition from the, ex, uh, the, the, uh, the international marketplace. And so UAN is able to stay a premium in relation. Gotcha. That makes sense. So a no vote would maybe allow some downward movement. A yes vote basically mm -hmm. just keeps those higher prices intact for the time being. Yeah. Josh, real quick, before we let you go, I know we've struggled to see Belarus export a lot of potash. Are they making any progress or do you expect them to keep theirs locked down while this war is ongoing with Ukraine? I have not seen any change, and we've got to continue to consider that Belarus potash exports, I, I don't think Lithuania allows them to flow. But we are seeing more and more, uh, you know, kind of rumors out in the marketplace. Other countries are realizing, hey, we kind of need their tons. We need those 7 million tons a year. Uh, Lithuania, hey, would you kind of ebb up on your, uh, your restrictions, start letting them go, because we kind of need to feed our people. I still wouldn't put it as a high percentage that they break, but it is something we're watching a little more closely because, again, that's one of those scenarios. If all of a sudden they do uh, turn around and say, yes, we will allow your potash to flow through our country now through our ports, all of a sudden, those tons show up. That's a very bearish signal as well. That's right. Put some more downward price pressure on the markets. Josh Linville, Director of Fertilizer at Stonex. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing your insight with us. Hey, thanks for having me on, sir. And folks, stick with us. Professor Glenn Tonser of Kansas State University will join us in the next segment to discuss the meat demand situation for the month of May. Stick with us for more on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Soil, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before. Farmer's Log, Soil Date 31655.4. We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. Guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's soil fleet humor. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Let's take a look at this market trade working through the mid-morning. We see soybeans and wheat rallying with double-digit strength while this corn market 
has faltered and is starting to pull back. It's trading right around the unchanged mark right now. We did get a soybean sale announced this morning of 12.9 million bushels to Pakistan. 2 million bushels will come from tight supplies of old crop beans and 10.9 coming from new crop. Pakistan, not a common destination to see in daily sales, but nevertheless, it's one that is going to uh, help this soybean market even more here and try to move things higher today. The Russia proposal to allow grain exports out of Ukraine has not gone away, but there are also many hurdles to overcome before an agreement can be reached. It seems like the trade keeps going back and forth with this news, and it's looking like the wheat markets today seeing a bit more skepticism with that news and starting to buy some of the break here through all three wheat classes so far in our morning action. The tentative recovery in stocks continued in the overnight trade as Wall Street seeks firm footing following weeks of liquidation pressure. The VIX trading just below 26 this morning. Dollar index pulling back uh, to trade near 102.1. Now also we're seeing uh, here right now the Dow trading down 162. S&P down 11, NASDAQ up 3. Crude oil's up only 96 cents a barrel, 116.22 as we see gas prices continuing to rise across the country up to a new record average of 4 71 a gallon for unleaded here this morning. Right now in the trade, corn for July up one and a half, 732 at a quarter. July beans up 27 at a quarter, 1717 and a half. Bean meal, bean oil up moderately. July Chicago wheat up 19 to three quarters, 1061. July KC wheat up 21 at a quarter, 1149 and a half. July spring wheat up eight and three quarters, 1205 at three quarters, with cattle futures mixed to higher. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor. Restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. You know, we just finished the Memorial Day weekend, a time to get together with family, remember the sacrifices that were made by those who keep our country great, and for a lot of folks, it was the time to fire up that grill or smoker, throw a little meat on there, and enjoy a tasty meal as summer gets started. Well, how are the consumers bearing this high price of meat through the grocery store industry, the retail chains, restaurants, you name it. Well, Glenn Tonser, Ag Economics Professor at Kansas State University, keeps track of this. He is the author of the Meat Demand Monitor, a survey that comes out every month digging in to consumers' decisions with how they spend their money with regard to the meat market. His data for the month of May is in hand, and Glenn Tonser joins us here. Professor Tonser, thanks for talking to us today. Oh, happy to. Thanks, Mike. Well, we have been seeing the U.S. consumer show surprising willingness to write checks, very big checks, for beef out there in the retail case. Glenn, what does the data show for the month of May? Is that willingness continuing? Yeah, so so before I lose this in the details, the overarching summary would be uh, May demand, both in the grocery store as well as restaurants, uh, was down from April levels but in general remains above May of 2021. So I'm going to give us several numbers, but if you don't follow anything else, that's the punchline. So uh, bacon demand is one of the pork categories we monitor, is down both from April as well as a year earlier, but pork chop demand and then ground beef and ribeye steak beef demand 
are down from April, but still ahead of May of 2021. If, if I put a bow around that for a moment for your listeners here, Mike, is, uh, and I'm going to give some other examples from our survey data, is higher prices, not just in the meat case, but throughout all of our economy. I think it's hitting consumer wallets. Uh, there's a net pay decline given inflation and wages that aren't keeping up for a good number of our households around the country. And I think they're just tightening their belt. And we saw that in May. Uh, demand has not fallen apart. That's why I give you the year over year. We're still in a good spot. But May may have been the turning point within 2022 on the demand story for me. Glenn, as you're looking at the data that you compile each month, is there a way to tell if consumers are moving down market or, or down scale in the meat case, maybe going from a ribeye to a pork chop or a pork chop to ground beef or ground beef to ground pork? Can we tell how consumers are adjusting their spending at the retail level? So, yes, we can pick up on some of that. And I'm going to add a category that we track that you didn't mention, and it's actually the plant-based patty category. Uh, so that's not a beef or a pork-focused uh, aspect, but it is tracked in this effort. And I'm highlighting it because it is the category we track that has actually had the largest decline in demand in the May 2022 period. So there's a full $1 per dinner meal decline in uh, willingness to pay for a meal that's plant-based, patty-based compared to a year earlier. And that is the strongest decline that is in our May series. Uh, there is some evidence, as you said, of like stake to ground shifting and so forth. So it's happening within the meat complex as well. But I think what is most stark is um, that plant-based, or if you want to use the term alternative protein category, is the one we saw the biggest pullback in the May data. That's interesting. We saw those plant-based meats come onto the market with a huge amount of fanfare two, three, oh gosh, probably four years ago. Now they're getting a little long in the tooth. To see that kind of downward pressure, Glenn, are there any hypothesis you have about that particular sector dropping so so quickly? Well, <clears throat> I, I think it's important to keep in mind that you know our country is huge. And I think you and I have talked about this before, Mike, is, you know, a country of 300 million people. Uh, there's room for multiple protein sources. Uh, so it's not just beef and pork and chicken. There's other proteins. And there's going to be a place for the plant-based uh, protein. But the novelty and the newness of the discussion, at least of existing products, is the same as it was a year or two ago. Uh, you know, there's still efforts to produce cell-based and the like that are worth talking about. And we'll do that at a different day. But those products today, so the plant-based products, tend to be quite a bit more expensive to produce and therefore they're offered at higher prices to consumers than in the past. And all else equal, if you now have consumers that are facing a net income hit because of the, that's how inflation works, if your wages aren't keeping up, it's not surprising to me that we're seeing a pullback in some of the more expensive categories. And that's why I share it. It's not just a steak to ground beef. I think also the other protein category, in this case, plant-based proteins, um, it, it's not surprising. We saw that pullback as well. Glenn, we talk about Memorial Day being the kickoff of summer grilling season. As you look at the grocery store data, does it look like consumers are still getting out there buying those choice cuts of beef or pork to throw on their grill? It, it does, and you get some different insights depending on what data set you look at. But one of the broader measures I, uh, that's embedded in the meat demand monitor is we estimate at-home food expense for the week separately from away from home. And I'll give you our main numbers year over year is our, our estimate for weekly at home, so I think grocery store take it home, uh, food expenditures is $116. That's up from 107 year before. Uh, so, you know, staying power is there, if you like, but you could spin that on its head, is that's an 8% increase in food expenditure per week, is, as estimated from the NDM data. And that's on par with a lot of the broader food inflation discussions. So are consumers still going to the grocery store and buying goods? Yes. Are they still buying meat? Yes. They're paying more for it. Um, and we've talked about that in a lot of other circles as well, is just the cost of producing meat, right, has went up. So while this project is called the Meat Demand Monitor, and that's what we focus on, we can't lose sight of the supply side of things that's behind the scenes and just the cost of raising the crops and results in higher feed prices, you know, labor rates and the like. Everything in the story of producing a pork chop or producing a ground beef package is resulting in higher prices, and consumers are seeing that throughout the entire grocery store, not just the meat complex. You mentioned that $116 expenditure for at home. That's per person. Glenn, is that how you measure that or is that per household? It's per household. Copy that. And do you look at, do you have a similar number for dining out, uh, restaurants and the like? We do. Same exercise. And the parallel estimate for the month of May was $66 and it was 67 actually the year before. So call that basically no change. 
um, it's we regularly see higher estimates on at home versus away from home in this series, particularly during the pandemic and where we're at now with if you want to call it after the pandemic or on the end of it, whatever we're going to call that. Um, but I, what I think is of most note there is there's other data sets that suggest expenditures away from home have not went up as much as at home, and the MDM data is consistent with that. So I think folks are slowing their foot traffic a little bit through restaurants, and they are doing a little bit of the clinical treating down, as you alluded to, in the grocery store. Glenn, do you track chicken consumption in the MDM as well? We have some very broad indications of demand for chicken breast, and that is it. Um, to clarify, the project is funded by beef and pork checkoff. So we include the major proteins, and that's why chicken has a role in here. But some of the deeper dive stuff is beef and pork focused, consistent with how the project is funded. That makes sense. What are you seeing briefly on chicken breast? How What have the trends been developing in that sector? So, so chicken breast demand also declined. So May demand was below April but remains above what it was the year before. Um, so that fits into my broader story. I, I don't think consumers are walking away from meat. I mean, I don't want to give the wrong impression here. Rather, I think they're just tightening their belt financially in the entire household. So they're being a little bit more careful what they buy. Uh, last month when we talked here, I believe, Mike, we talked about, you know, I, I've included this question, how are you responding to higher meat prices? And it's still the case that about one-third of households tell me they're not making the change. So they're just paying more and they're buying the same stuff. The other two-thirds of our sample, over 2,000 people every month, are saying they're making some kind of change. And the most common change is they're buying the exact same item. So the same brand, same cut, same package size, but they're just buying fewer items. So there's a whole litany of adjustments. Some people are buying a slightly smaller package size and the like. But I, I want to hone in on two-thirds are making a change, one-third aren't. And that speaks to the dichotomy of responses here. Uh, that would fit for chicken, beef, and pork, I believe. All right, Glenn. And those questions you get to ask in every MDM, but you always uncover some fascinating looks at the way people, the way consumers are approaching this space in this month's ad hoc questioning. Did you have anything that uh, showed you something interesting? Yeah, and it would be to the core of our discussion today. It's not just inflation. I think it's um, consumer confidence is weakening as we speak. So one of the things that is embedded in our MDM is we actually use questions from the University of Michigan's longstanding multi-decade uh, consumer sentiment assessment, and we repeat those. And I'll give you two, uh, two specific numbers here to drive the point home. Is in our May of 2022 data, 37% say that their finances, like the general household finances, are worse than they were last year. That was a 19% when I asked it in May of 21. So people are getting more pessimistic about their at-home finances. We ask parallel questions about looking forward for next year, and those numbers are also more pessimistic. So I think consumers are taking stock of the general macroeconomic economy, right? Interest rates going up, their pay not keeping up with inflation and the like, and they're just getting conservative, uh, certainly compared to six or 12 months ago. And as I keep saying, they're tightening their financial belt a little bit. Glenn, does that tightening have you concerned about margins in the cattle space as you look out for the remainder of 22? Um, it, it might, I, you know, it depends how far we go with that tightening. So, you know, if the month of May here in 2022 truly is a turning point, and if we have multiple months of meat demand decline afterwards, then yes, because by definition, that means we're going to have fewer dollars entering the entire, uh, you know, beef cattle as well as the pork hog complex, and that will tighten into margins. But I want to be careful because this is the first month we've seen that across the board, retail and food service demand decline, at least in a month over month space. So next month or two months from now, whenever you and I next talk, you can ask me that again. If it becomes a multi-month pattern, I get quite concerned, but I want to be careful not to overreact just the first month we see it, Mike. That is fair, folks. For information, all the work that Glenn does at K-State, including the Meat Demand Monitor, you can visit their website at agmanager.info. Bookmark it. Great resources there from Kansas State. Glenn, thank you so much for talking to us, for giving us the story on meat demand across the countryside. Thanks for having me on, Mike. And folks, stick with us. Mike Strands, Vice President of Advocacy at the National Farmers Union, will join us when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, 
Your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Mike Rowe here with a gentle reminder that civilization is held together by pipes, wires, and cables. It's true. There are over 5 million miles of gas lines, power lines, fiber optic lines, water lines, and sewer lines all buried beneath your feet. And every 60 seconds, somebody digs into one. Look, if you're thinking about digging around, do yourself a favor and call 811 first just to find out what's down there. Trust me. You don't want to find out the hard way. Call or click 811 before you dig and visit safeexcavator.com for more info. Hi, I'm Secretary Tom Vilsack. In my 40-plus years of experience in the ag industry, I have seen firsthand the tremendous value and influence of the census of agriculture. A complete count of our farms, ranches, and the people who operate them that tells the story of U.S. agriculture. It highlights trends, needs, and the great impact agriculture has on every American, as well as folks around the world. Ag census data also informs federal, state, and local decisions that will affect you and your operations for years to come. If you're an ag producer, no matter the size of your operation, urban or rural, and you did not receive the 2017 Census of Agriculture and did not receive other USDA surveys, you still have time to sign up to receive the 2022 Ag Census this fall. Every voice matters. To sign up or learn more, visit nas.usda.gov backslash agcensus. Thank you. The water is open. It's time to go boating and fishing and leave stress in our wake. Feel the wind as we ride and a fish on the line. Reel in our first catch and feel the sun at our backs. It's get out on the water season. It's time to get on board. Find out where to get on board near you. Visit Take Me Fishing and Discover Boating to learn more. And please recreate responsibly. Get on board. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. 
This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in to AOA Today. Yesterday, there was some big news from the USDA. At a speech at Georgetown University, Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack announced a new framework. This is designed to, quote, shore up the food supply chain and transform the food system to be more fair, more competitive, and more resilient. $2.1 billion in funding was announced. It's fresh, but... Ag groups have been digging into the details, and joining me today to discuss it is Mike Strands, the Vice President of Advocacy at the National Farmers Union. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Mike. Glad to be here. Let's talk about this announcement yesterday. $2.1 billion was the headline number. Mike, who is getting what and how much is going where? What do we know about this program from USDA? Yeah, thanks for the question, Mike. The uh, announcement yesterday uh, comes on the heels of really a little more than a year of work by USDA as they've been implementing some of the uh, funding made available by the American Rescue Plan. That's the bill that passed back in February and March of 2021 uh, that came on the heels of the pandemic and all of the disruptions that went on in the food supply chain. I think a lot of uh, lawmakers saw how important it was to make sure that we've got a resilient and strong food supply and how that makes a big impact, obviously, for consumers, but for farmers and ranchers alike. So with all of Absolutely. We've got to have that system work for everybody, Mike. And to a big part of that, the food shortages we saw in the grocery stores at the start of the pandemic spooked a lot of consumers and made folks concerned about supply chains. Was there a component of this that was designed to help with that supply chain issue? Yeah. Uh, so there's, uh, there's some couple hundred million dollars that USDA will be putting forward to having more and better and more fair options for farmers and ranchers to market their crops and livestock. We've seen some of this already in meatpacking, where obviously some of the worst uh, examples of our efficient but brittle food system were exposed during 2020, uh, how there's some money out there already for smaller to medium-sized plants to get upgrades and technology that will help them send meat across state lines and to comply with inspection standards there. That concept of providing more choices for plants to market their uh, what they've processed and to give farmers more choices for who to sell to carries over. So we're seeing uh, some supply chain improvements there. If something goes down at one of the big processing plants, it won't have as much of a cascading effect as we've seen in uh, the last couple of years. Well, that is good news. Of course, that resilient supply chain is key. Mike, as I was reading through the summary of this announcement yesterday, it struck me that a lot of these funding sources or a lot of these funding end goals are, for lack of a better word, I'm going to call them middle uh, managers, the supply chain folks, the processors, the intermediaries between farmers and consumers. On the farmer side, is there any money available to assist farmers directly in any way? So the uh, announcements yesterday focus, like you said, on the middle and providing more options in the middle. I think what we've seen and have heard from farmers union members and friends across the country is that they've been harmed because there aren't many choices in the middle for marketing. And if there are more uh, places to sell your crops, sell your livestock, if you have more choices for marketing uh, what you've grown, uh, that has an impact on your bottom line as a farmer or rancher. And that's a, a bit of a different approach than we've seen in the last couple of decades, really, where much of the uh, assistance for farmers has rightfully been directed uh, rather uh, on payments and making up for losses rather than providing some additional choices. I think there needs to be both. And having these additional choices, in addition to direct assistance to farmers that have been announced through the disaster programs or from the market facilitation program, a lot of those efforts are important too, but to have some choices in the middle uh, is a, a new approach and one that we're welcoming. 
Absolutely. It's great to see more competition in every space, I think, is a win for consumers. Mike, with regard to this announcement, it was big. It was yesterday. What's your sense for timeline as to when these dollars might actually roll out into the sector? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's kind of a cascading effect here. And Secretary Vilsack uh, was careful to note that the changes aren't going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month. It's going to be later this year when impacts are going to be felt by consumers at the grocery store as uh, some of the food price inflation hopefully will abide or abate, I guess, uh, by then. And then uh, for some of the programs, say, on urban agriculture, for instance, uh, there's some programs that are already out there that are ready to receive these funds that can churn out some more uh, funds that way. Uh, There's a lot of work that will be done with existing programs to just, you know, programs, for instance, on climate that have been particularly popular and a lot of requests have come in to use that the funds available. Now there will be more uh, there in the pot, so to speak, and that it, it can go along further. So I expect we'll see some of these programs uh, really bumped up in the next couple of months uh, through the rest of the year. Mike, before we let you go, there's also a conversation still happening in the meat space, and this is over that special investigator uh, bill that was passed out of the House Ag Committee. Tanner Bamer of NCBA and was on earlier opposing the measure as duplicative and wasteful. I know NFU supports it. What are the reasons you folks are in support of this particular bill? Absolutely. Yeah, we need more investigations into, like you said, a market that's not very competitive. And a prime example of that is in the meat and poultry space. Uh, that's why we support the Special Investigator Act. USDA has powers uh, granted through the Packers and Stockyards Act and other legislation to dig into the the meat market to make sure that there are choices out there for farmers and that they're not being taken advantage of because there are so few buyers in that space. So greater enforcement of these laws by USDA will give us a chance uh, and will help make sure that farmers have a fair market to sell into. A lot of opinions out there on that bill, folks. If you want to read more from the NFU, you can visit their website. That's nfu.org. We were talking there with Mike Strands, Vice President of Advocacy at National Farmers Union. Folks, tune in to AOA tomorrow. We're going to talk markets with Arlen Suderman, and we're going to talk inflation with Professor Jason Miller. We'll see you then. Have a great day, everybody. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network.